Book One, Chapter Two of The Circular Study. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Circular Study by Anna Katharine Green. Chapter Two Mysteries. A moment of indecision, of awe even, elapsed before Mr. Grice recovered himself. The dim light, the awesome silence, the unexpected surroundings recalling a romantic age, the motionless figure of him who so lately had been the master of the house, lying outstretched as for the tomb, with a sacred symbol on his breast offering such violent contradiction to the earthly passions which had driven the dagger home, were enough to move even the tired spirit of this old officer of the law, and confuse a mind which, in the years of his long connection with the force, had had many serious problems to work upon, but never one just like this. It was only for a moment, though. Before the man behind him had given utterance to his own bewilderment and surprise, Mr. Grice had passed in and taken his stand by the prostrate figure. That it was that of a man who had long since ceased to breathe he could not for a moment doubt. Yet his first act was to make sure of the fact by laying his hand on the pulse and examining the eyes, whose expression of reproach was such that he had to call up all his professional sang-froid to meet them. He found the body still warm, but dead beyond all question, and once convinced of this he forbore to draw the dagger from the wound, though he did not fail to give it the most careful attention before turning his eyes elsewhere. It was no ordinary weapon. It was a curio from some oriental shop. This in itself seemed to point to suicide, but the direction in which the blade had entered the body, and the position of the wound, were not such as would be looked for in a case of self-murder. The other clues were few. Though the scene had been one of bloodshed and death, the undoubted result of a sudden and fierce attack, there were no signs of struggle to be found in the well-ordered apartment. Beyond a few rose-leaves scattered on the floor, the room was a scene of peace and quiet luxury. Even the large table which occupied the centre of the room, and near which the master of the house had been standing when struck, gave no token of the tragedy which had been enacted at its side. That is, not at first glance, for though its large top was covered with articles of use and ornament, they all stood undisturbed and presumably in place, as if the shock which had laid their owner low had failed to be communicated to his belongings. The contents of the table were various. Only a man of complex tastes and attainments could have collected and arranged in one small compass pipes, pens, portraits, weights, measures, Roman lamps, Venetian glass, rare porcelains, medals, rough metalwork, manuscript, a scroll of music, a pot of growing flowers, and, and, this seemed oddest of all, a row of electric buttons, which Mr. Grice no sooner touched than the light which had been burning redly in the cage of fretted ironwork overhead, 
changed in a twinkling to a greenish glare, filling the room with such ghastly tints that Mr. Grice sought in haste another button, and pressing it, was glad to see a mild white radiance take the place of the sickly hue which had added its own horror to the already solemn terrors of the spot. "'Childish tricks for a man of his age and position,' ruminated Mr. Grice. But after catching another glimpse of the face lying upturned at his feet, he was conscious of a doubt as to whether the owner of that countenance could have possessed an instinct which was in any wise childish, so strong and purposeful were his sharply cut features. Indeed, the face was one to make an impression under any circumstances. In the present instance, and with such an expression stamped upon it, it exerted a fascination which disturbed the current of the detective's thoughts whenever by any chance he allowed it to get between him and his duty. To attribute folly to a man with such a mouth and such a chin was to own oneself a poor judge of human nature. Therefore the lamp overhead, with its electric connection and changing slides, had a meaning which at present could be sought for only in the evidences of scientific research observable in the books and apparatus everywhere surrounding him. Letting the white light burn on, Mr. Grice, by a characteristic effort, shifted his attention to the walls, covered, as I have said, with tapestries and curios. There was nothing on them calculated to aid him in his research into the secret of this crime, unless yes there was something a bent-down nail wrenched from its place the nail on which the cross had hung which now lay upon the dead man's heart the cord by which it had been suspended still clung to the cross and mingled its red threads with that other scarlet thread which had gone to meet it from the victim's wounded breast who had torn down that cross not the victim himself with such a wound any such movement would have been impossible. Besides, the nail and the empty place on the wall were as far removed from where he lay as was possible in the somewhat circumscribed area of this circular apartment. Another's hand, then, had pulled down this symbol of peace and pardon and placed it where the dying man's fleeting breath would play across it, a peculiar exhibition of religious hope or mad remorse to the significance of which Mr. Grice could not devote more than a passing thought, so golden were the moments in which he found himself alone upon this scene of crime. Behind the table and halfway up the wall was a picture, the only large picture in the room. It was the portrait of a young girl of an extremely interesting and pathetic beauty, from her garb and the arrangement of her hair, it had evidently been painted about the end of our civil war. In it was to be observed the same haunting quality of intellectual charm, visible in the man lying prone upon the floor, and though she was fair and he dark, there was sufficient likeness between the two to argue some sort of relationship between them. Below this picture were fastened a sword, a pair of epaulets, and a medal such as was awarded for valor in the Civil War. "'Mementos which may help us in our task,' mused the detective. 
Passing on, he came unexpectedly upon a narrow curtain, so dark of hue and so akin in pattern to the draperies on the adjoining walls that it had up to this time escaped his attention. It was not that of a window, for such windows as were to be seen in this unique apartment were high upon the wall, indeed almost under the ceiling. It must, therefore, drape the opening into still another communicating room. And such he found to be the case. Pushing this curtain aside, he entered a narrow closet containing a bed, a dresser, and a small table. The bed was the narrow cot of a bachelor, and the dresser that of a man of luxurious tastes and the utmost nicety of habit. Both the bed and dresser were in perfect order, save for a silver-backed comb which had been taken from the latter, and which he presently found lying on the floor at the other end of the room. This, and the presence of a pearl-handled parasol on a small stand near the door, proclaimed that a woman had been there within a short space of time. The identity of this woman was soon established in his eyes by a small but unmistakable token connecting her with the one who had been the means of sending in the alarm to the police. The token of which I speak was a little black spangle, called by milliners and mantua-makers a sequin, which lay on the threshold separating this room from the study and as Mr. Grice, attracted by its sparkle, stooped to examine it, his eye caught sight of a similar one on the floor beyond, and of still another a few steps farther on. The last one lay close to the large centre table before which he had just been standing. The dainty trail formed by these bright sparkling drops seemed to affect him oddly. He knew, minute observer that he was, that in the manufacture of this garniture the spangles are strung on a thread which, if once broken, allows them to drop away one by one, till you can almost follow a woman so arrayed by the sequins that fall from her. Perhaps it was the delicate nature of the clue thus offered that pleased him, perhaps it was a recognition of the irony of fate in thus making a trap for unwary mortals out of their vanities. Whatever it was, the smile with which he turned his eye upon the table toward which he had thus been led, was very eloquent. But before examining this article of furniture more closely, he attempted to find out where the thread had become loosened which had let the spangles fall. Had it caught on any projection in doorway or furniture? He saw none. All the chairs were cushioned, and— but wait, there was the cross. That had a fretwork of gold at its base. Might not this filigree have caught in her dress as she was tearing down the cross from the wall, and so have started the thread which had given him this exquisite clue? Hastening to the spot where the cross had hung, he searched the floor at his feet, but found nothing to confirm his conjecture until he had reached the rug upon which the prostrate man lay. There, amid the long hairs of the bearskin, he came upon one other spangle, and knew that the woman in the shiny clothes had stooped there before him. Satisfied on this point, he returned to the table, and this time subjected it to a thorough and minute examination. 
That the result was not entirely unsatisfactory was evident from the smile with which he eyed his finger after having drawn it across a certain spot near the inkstand, and also from the care with which he lifted that inkstand and replaced it in precisely the same spot from which he had taken it up. Had he expected to find something concealed under it? Who can tell? A detective's face seldom yields up its secrets. He was musing quite intently before this table when a quick step behind him made him turn. Stiles, the officer, having now been over the house, had returned, and was standing before him in the attitude of one who has something to say. "'What is it?' asked Mr. Grice, with a quick movement in his direction." For answer, the officer pointed to the staircase visible through the antechamber door. "'Go up,' was indicated by his gesture. Mr. Grice demurred, casting a glance around the room, which at that moment interested him so deeply. At this the man showed some excitement, and, breaking silence, said, "'Come, I have lighted on the guilty party. He is in a room upstairs.' "'He?' Mr. Grice was evidently surprised at the pronoun. "'Yes, there can be no doubt about it. When you see him—' "'But what is that? Is he coming down? I'm sure there's nobody else in the house. Don't you hear footsteps, sir?' Mr. Grice nodded. Someone was certainly descending the stairs. "'Let us retreat,' suggested Stiles, "'not because the man is dangerous, but because it is very necessary you should see him before he sees you.' "'He's a very strange-acting man, sir, and if he comes in here will be sure to do something to incriminate himself. Where can we hide?' Mr. Grice remembered the little room he had just left, and drew the officer toward it. Once installed inside, he let the curtain drop till only a small loophole remained. The steps, which had been gradually growing louder, kept advancing, and presently they could hear the intruders breathing— which was both quick and laboured. "'Does he know that anyone has entered the house? Did he see you when you came upon him upstairs?' whispered Mr. Grice into the ear of the man beside him. Stiles shook his head and pointed eagerly toward the opposite door. The man for whose appearance they waited had just lifted the portiere, and in another moment stood in full view just inside the threshold. Mr. Grice and his attendant colleague both stared. Was this the murderer, this pale, lean servitor with a tray in his hand on which rested a single glass of water? Mr. Grice was so astonished that he looked at Stiles for explanation. But that officer, hiding his own surprise, for he had not expected this peaceful figure, urged him in a whisper to have patience and both, turning toward the man again, beheld him advance, stop, cast one look at the figure lying on the floor, and then let slip the glass with a low cry that at once changed to something like a howl. "'Look at him, look at him,' urged Stiles in a hurried whisper. "'Watch what he will do now. You will see a murderer at work.' And sure enough, in another instant, this strange being— losing all semblance to his former self, entered upon a series of pantomimic actions which to the two men who watched him seemed both to explain and illustrate the crime which had just been enacted there. 
With every appearance of passion he stood contemplating the empty air before him, and then, with one hand held stretched out behind him in a peculiarly cramped position, he plunged with the other toward a table from which he made a feint of snatching something, which he no sooner closed his hand upon than he gave a quick side-thrust, still at the empty air, which seemed to quiver in return, so vigorous was his action and so evident his intent. The reaction following this thrust, the slow unclosing of his hand from an imaginary dagger, the tottering of his body backward, then the moment when, with wide-open eyes, he seemed to contemplate in horror the result of his own deed, these needed no explanation beyond what was given by his writhing features and trembling body. Gradually succumbing to the remorse or terror of his own crime, he sank lower and lower, until, though with that one arm still stretched out, he lay in an inert heap on the floor. "'It is what I saw him do upstairs,' murmured Stiles into the ear of the amazed detective. "'He has evidently been driven insane by his own act.' Mr. Grice made no answer. Here was a problem for the solution of which he found no precedent in all his past experience. End of Book One, Chapter Two